How's everyone doing? Good. Um, well, last week, if you were here, we actually got to go through uh, a theology of the Stranger Things, and it was the weirdest, wildest thing that I think we'll ever do at Resonate, and it was super fun, and I'm going to toss this over here. Um, and this morning, we actually get to go back into our series on uh, the story and getting into just where we find ourselves in God's narrative. If you've been with us for a while, actually, we can do a round of applause for this. This is Resonate's one month anniversary of the launch and the fall launch and all our fresh visions. So if you guys want to give it up for that, you can clap your hands. Hit the light. Yeah, hit the light. Hit the light. There it is. Ah, yeah. All right. Um, so, basically, the, the series story is all about trying to create a sacred space in which we can find ourselves within the story of God. And uh, we've done creation, we've done Adam and Eve, we've done Cain and Abel, uh, we did Noah and the Flood, we did Jacob. Um, and this morning, after our break for the Stranger Things party, we're going to go through uh, Joseph. And this is a really, really cool story just about God's faithfulness, his love for all people. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to jump in this, but let's pray together before we get going. So Lord, uh, I am so grateful just for a Sunday morning, man. What a great, just as, as Omid led us and Harrison led us through that peace, perfect peace. God, I pray that you would, uh, you just put that peace on us this morning as we dive into the story of Joseph, as we reach the culmination of this crazy, crazy election season as we reach the culmination of this year and things are getting crazier in our work environments and our lives, God, would you just uh, insert like that peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding that you promise and only you can bring. So we love you, God. We're excited to see what you're going to do this morning through the story of Joseph. Amen. Uh, so I was about seven years old. And I was living in Sacramento, California with my family, and on Saturdays, I was one of three kids, so I'm the oldest. There was a seven-year-old me, a five-year-old sister, and a two-year-old little brother. And on Saturdays, my dad would play records, like the big vinyl things, and mostly Beatles records, and we would dance around the room for a good solid hour and a half, and it was forced upon us. So looking back on this, this is more just like my parents wanting us to get puckered out and tired. But we would run around the room, we'd go all these fast songs and everything, and I really considered myself sort of the king of the dance moves. Um, shocker. And, and I was seven years old, my brother's two, my sister's five, and uh, my go-to move would be just like running around in circles or jumping up and down. Uh, but this particular Saturday, this particular day, my brother had come of age, and he was two years old, and he bursts onto the scene with what he called the booty dance. Now, this is a two-year-old adorable child who would shake his hips and laugh hysterically as he was doing it, and it just killed. Anything I did, I couldn't, running around didn't help anymore, jumping up and down didn't help anymore. The booty dance had essentially dethroned me from king of the dance on Saturday mornings, and my showboaty self was not going to take this. So... I ran out to uh, the garage where I knew my mom kept her sewing stuff. This is how devious I was as a child. This is, you're getting a little insight into my dark soul. I go to find my mom's sewing equipment, and I find a strawberry pushpin that has a thumbtack in it, and I take the thumbtack out of this pushpin, and I come back to the dance floor. And my brother, who is two years old at this time, just absolutely loves me. And this is still a kid. Me and my brother are like best friends. We're as close as brothers could possibly be. This was just a a devious mismark in my life, but uh, he would do anything that I would say. So I'm seven years old, and he's two, right? And he just trusts me blindly, wildly, wildly trusts me. So I place down the pushpin, let's call it like right here, and uh, I tell Brendan when he dances, he should dance in that exact spot. And so Brendan comes up in like two-year-old trot and just, boom, slams down on the pushpin. 
and instantly. It's like that moment that, like, you, you know, you had this sort of planned out, and then you realize, like, oh, really, it's, this has really happened. Uh, he, he lifts up his foot, and it's just, like, hanging in there, and he screams. It, was, it wasn't even, like, a cry. It was just this, like, ah! He screams. My sister screams. I scream. My dad runs into the room, grabs my little brother, pulls the pin out, more screaming, and then I am engulfed in this, this, this evangelical Christian little guilt that has been so in, like, infused in my soul, and I drop to my knees right in front of my father and exclaim, like, it was me, I did it, you know, like, just, just distraught, so he's like, what's going on here, Josh is having a breakdown, there's a pin in my son's foot, and then my sister's just somewhere doing her thing. Um, and the story we're going to focus on this morning kind of focuses on that brotherly rage, that interesting thing that happens in a family dynamic where, like, when you're younger, you push and you pull against each other. And the funny thing about the scriptures is we saw this in the story of Cain and Abel, saw this in the story of Jacob. It's always, it always seems to somehow come back to the idea that the people we should love the most, our family, are often the people that we are in most conflict with. And the grand symbolism in the poetry of Genesis is that is that we do such a poor job of loving the people that we're actually called to love the most. So let's get into um, uh, to Joseph here. Uh, Joseph is a key, key narrative in Genesis, the book that we've been rolling through for the past couple weeks. It's actually the longest narrative. It stretches like from chapter 35 all the way to chapter 47. So in the story of Genesis, this is the biggest chunk and it's, it's also one of the most straightforward but devastating stories in it. So it's an interesting thing that the, the writer seems to want to stretch this story out. And we're going to talk about that this morning as well. But um, uh, Joseph, uh, if you are a Broadway fan or a musical fan, you know him from his amazing Technicolor uh, dream coat. There's a lot more to him than his coat. And what we're going to jump in today is the story of Joseph is really about trust. And it's really about Joseph's unwavering, unbelievable ability to trust what God is doing, even in the midst of the craziest devastation you can imagine. He just somehow always comes back. And even scholars have looked at this passage and go, like, there's surprisingly not a lot of bitterness in Joseph, in the character of Joseph. And what we're going to see in the story is that there should be a whole lot of bitterness. So starting out, jo- Joseph is... Um, uh, Jacob's son, who we talked about two weeks ago, Jacob became Israel. He was given a new name, and that Israel is like a significant symbolism because the entire nation of Israel is then named after Jacob. So Joseph is the, uh, the last of ten brothers. Can you imagine having ten brothers? So he's the last of ten, and he's significantly younger than them all. The scripture says he's about 17 years old. And it also says that Jacob had him in like really, really old age. So all of his brothers would be like 20 years older than, uh, than Joseph, and, and significantly older. So this is like sort of the baby of the group, and it even describes that uh, Jacob loves this son more than anyone because he has him in an old age. He's like this cute little baby. Love this kid. So he makes him this coat, and this coat basically signifies Jacob, Israel's love for his son, Joseph. And what the Scripture makes abundantly clear is that this drives the brothers crazy. So let's go to the Scripture here um, in the text. It says... This is uh, Genesis 37, 4 through 8. It says, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said said to them, listen to this. Listen to this dream I had. We were binding 
sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. So it's tense. And that's just the opening statement in the Joseph story. And then he doubles down. And this is right after that. This, that was verse 8. This is verse 9 uh, through 11. It says, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. He said, listen, I've had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, uh, as well as his brothers, his, brother, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Yeah, so Joseph, like I said, is 17 at this point. So it's easy to look at this and kind of look at like the arrogance of a teenager, of a 17-year-old kid, and go like, Why are you telling your brothers these dreams? But that's not actually the point. See, in the ancient Hebrew society that they are living in, dreams were really, really important. When someone had a dream, especially something as, as strange and as significant as this, it was actually viewed as like a divine order. So it was something that was from God. They believed that dreams actually like helped uh, like you understand what God's plan for your life was. Jacob, his father, had had an incredible dream that had come true with the ladder, all this kind of stuff. So dreams were from God. So this isn't Joseph being arrogant. This is actually Joseph trying to wrestle with the fact that he's having these dreams and he's going, I don't know what God is doing, but it sure seems frightening. And here is what it is. And the, the, the crazy part about that is that it makes their brothers like so, so furiously jealous. So this isn't his fault. This is the same as my brother in the booty dance. The booty dance was not my brother's fault, and yet I wanted to stab him with a pushpin. Now you have a dream in which all the brothers and even the parents are going to bow down to the youngest member of this family. And you have to remember, that would have offended every sort of Jewish context. In that day, the order you were born in was real, real, real important, and there was no way that the youngest child was going to be the one that everyone was going to bow down to. So it gets his brothers really, really, really upset, so much so. The brothers get so angry and offended that one day, as Joseph goes to meet them in the field, his father sends him out, and he says, hey, go see what your brothers are doing. Come back and report to me. He goes out into the field, and the brothers see him coming from a long way off, and one of the brothers just turns to the rest, and he goes, we should kill him. I mean, this is how angry they are. We should kill him, right? So they plot this plan together. They're like, we'll, we'll like tear up his cloak. We'll bring it back to our father, and then he'll know that like a wild animal had ravaged him, so it won't be on us. Now, Reuben, who is like one of the oldest brothers and a rather enterprising man, said, let's not kill him. Rather, let's sell him into slavery. So those are the two options. This is like deeply, deeply crazy, hurtful stuff. And so they throw him in, a, in the bottom of a cistern, which is essentially a well, but it's made of stone. And I did some research on what a cistern is. It's like 20 feet deep. So they chuck him down a stone well that had no water in it and leave him there until travelers come to buy him and sell him in to slavery. So this story, it's devastating. Joseph gets this dream. It's not his fault. He gets this thing from God. It's not his fault. And then all of a sudden, this dream has led him to the bottom of this cistern, like broken and being sold as a product into slavery. So Joseph gets sold uh, into slavery, and he gets sold to a man named Potiphar, who is this sort of like 
really influential person in Egypt. And so he, gets, he travels all the way to Egypt, and he's, uh, he's enslaved with Potiphar, and Potiphar is his master. But Joseph seems to have this knack for things. He seems to be, like, really blessed with God. And, and the scripture even points to that. It says the Lord was with Joseph. And whenever it says that, you got to pay attention, because that means, like, God is doing something in this story. So Joseph uh, is... is is under Potiphar and soon becomes Potiphar's right-hand man. So he rises from just this slave, and then Potiphar starts handing him more and more and more responsibilities until eventually Joseph is just kind of running Potiphar's entire house. And Potiphar really didn't do much besides just sort of show up and eat and do whatever. It was just all Joseph doing everything. And as Joseph sort of rises to prominence in this, still a slave, mind you, Potiphar's wife begins taking a liking to this young man. So... Joseph is, is doing great things. He's turning Potiphar's profits. He's, he's making this house run smoothly. And Potiphar's wife begins to know Joseph, and Joseph is described as a pretty good-looking dude. So she decides, well, I'm going to go make a move. She makes a move, and Joseph is like, no way am I going to get into that situation. So he runs, right? And he runs. This is, this is how like, deep the scripture gets into this. He, he, like, she approaches him again. And he wants to get out of there so bad that she grabs his robe, and he literally just, like, disrobes and runs out the room naked. Like, that's, that's a lot of commitment, and that's a good um, employee. Uh, she, gets, she has the cloak in her hand, though, and gets the idea in her head, just as his brothers had had before, that I, I can't stand this Joseph anymore. So she goes to Potiphar, and she tells him that, hey, your, your guy, Joseph, tried to make a move on me and, and did. And so Potiphar is outraged. He's completely, like, just blind with rage. This is someone that he had begun to trust. This is his right-hand man. And all of a sudden, he's sleeping with his wife. What is this? And so he throws him in a dungeon. So get the symbolism here. We have the brothers and the jealousy, and we have him thrown in a well. And now we have Potiphar and his jealous rage, and we're getting thrown into a dungeon. The story of Joseph is this up and down, this up down. And there's that initial dream to look to where we know something great is going to happen with Joseph. And Joseph had to know that too. So the start of the story has to stick with him. And he's like, what is it about that dream? And dreams come up again in the dungeon. So he's in the dungeon and there's a baker and a cupbearer. I know it's like, you know, two guys walk into a bar. There's a baker and a cupbearer and they're in prison for something. Scripture doesn't say why. And they start having these dreams. And they get really upset because they have no one to interpret these dreams. When you had a dream in this ancient society, you would go to someone to say, what does this mean? And Joseph tells them, hey, my God can do that. So lay the dream on me, and I'll throw it up to God. We'll see what's going on. So they, they tell him the dreams, and he turns out to interpret them, like, exactly. Like, crazy, crazy well. So the cupbearer and the breadmaker get out of prison. Unfortunately, the breadmaker is killed. The cupbearer is still okay. Uh, and... The cupbearer, a couple years later, and the scripture says he forgets Joseph and his dream-interpreting capabilities. A couple years later, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh, like this is like POTUS, like Pharaoh, this is the big guy, starts having strange, nightmarish-type dreams, and he gathers together all of these, these magic people, these soothsayers, and he says, what do these dreams mean? And no one can get it. No one can get it. Basically, the dream is that there are these seven cows, and they come out of the river, and they're all these big, beautiful, healthy cows, and they begin to eat the wheat that's around. 
And then the second part of the dream is that these scrawny, evil-looking, crazy cows come out of the river, and they eat the healthy cows. So if, you're, if someone's like telling you a dream and they lay that on you, you're going to be like, well, no, you need to stop eating before you go to bed or something. There's something weird going on with you. So the cupbearer is actually the guy that comes up, and he says, you know, I, if these guys aren't getting it for you, I, I know a guy, and it's going to sound weird, but he's in prison, and I met him in jail. And Pharaoh is so desperate at this point that he goes, fine, you know, go get, go get Joseph. Like, bring him to me. And he tells Joseph the dream. And Joseph very plainly tells him, like, I'm not going to be able to interpret this for you. I'm sure Pharaoh's like, oh, great. Well, I just pulled this guy out of jail. But he goes, but God can. So give me the dream, and God's going to interpret it for you. So he gives him the dream, and Joseph nails it. And he says, basically what this means is that you're going to have seven years of abundance. There's that number seven again. Seven years of abundance and there's going to be all of this, like, crop. There's going to be, like, beautiful abundance and, and, and beauty for seven years. And then after that, it's going to be followed by seven of the worst years Egypt and this side of the world has ever seen in terms of famine. So Pharaoh then doubles down, and he's like, well, what, what do we do about that? And Joseph goes, well, God has a plan, so here's the plan. And he lays out this plan. We're going to keep one-fifth of the portion of every crop for the seven years that we're in this bountiful, huge time, and then we're going to use it when we get into the famine. And Pharaoh is so impressed by this. He's so, like, blown away that Joseph is able to be this wise. Here's this guy from a prison. He knows nothing about him, and yet he seems to be laying out this grand plan for Egypt. So Pharaoh goes, all right, you're the guy. Take it. Run with it. So Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. So let's clock this story back from the start. We have a lowly shepherd boy who is the youngest of a family of ten, who is thrown into a well, into slavery, then into a dungeon, and now he's somehow the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And I think the, the crazy important part of this story to pay attention to is the fact that if Joseph hadn't gone through all of those perils and all of those devastating moments in his life, he never would have ended up in a position where he could have interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He never would have ended up in a position of prominence. He would have been in the field as a shepherd. So God used all of these crazy, impossible situations to get Joseph to a place where he could use him. And Joseph trusts him throughout that entire narrative to get him to this space because that original dream that God gave him, Joseph just knew in his heart, like, something is going on here, and God has got something for me. So Joseph becomes a right-hand man. They start saving all this grain, and sure enough, just as Joseph said, the famine hits. So there's these seven awesome years, and then right then and there, huge, destructive famine hits the land. And it's stuff that they've never seen before. And it doesn't just affect Egypt. It affects all the nations surrounding Egypt. And no one has food but Egypt. And so Egypt, and Joseph, Joseph's like just a, a totally awesome CEO. He decides, well, let's sell the grain to the surrounding nations. So the other nations start coming in, and they start buying food from Egypt. As Egypt was literally the only place where they could get grain. So they start buying this food, and people start coming from all over the world because they hear legend that Egypt has got some food, and they'll pay whatever price it takes because they need to survive. So they come, and eventually it reaches Jacob's household, his brothers, and the famine is hit there too. And so Jacob says, I've heard that there's food in Egypt. I'm going to send you guys, all of you brothers, go to Egypt, <clears throat> find out if there's food, and if there's food there, buy as much as you can. So all of the brothers set out to Egypt, and when they get there, Joseph recognizes them immediately. 
You have to understand, I mean, this is, the Bible explains that he's 17 when he's first thrown in that well, and now he's 30 years old. So this is almost half of his lifetime that he's been estranged from his family, and this family is the one that hurt him the most. These are the brothers that out of, Joseph did nothing. They, they chucked him into slavery, and they were going to kill him. So imagine the emotion that's coming up in Joseph as he sees his brothers coming from afar. He's got to be like, whoa. This is where the story gets very, very long. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of zip through this part. There's an amazing sort of part where Joseph puts a bunch of cups and some sacks, and then there's money given to them, and then all this stuff. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself and he says, I'm, I'm, it's me, your brother. I'm here. And he forgives his family, and there's hugging, and there's tears, and there's all this amazing redemption and forgiveness. And what's incredible about the story of Joseph is that he is able to forgive that greatly. God used a seemingly terrible, terrible situation to then ultimately not only save the family that threw him into slavery, but also save all of the surrounding nations. If Egypt hadn't had the foresight to store away this grain, everyone would have suffered. There would have been terrible, devastating death. And yet through Joseph, God is able to provide for everyone. So the core of the story is the trust that Joseph has, but then there's also this situation where he gets thrown in these seemingly impossible scenarios, right? The well, dungeon, uh, like being, being accused of uh, sleeping with his boss's wife, all of this crazy stuff. And Joseph somehow trusted that. So our theme this morning is going to be how we can get through a seemingly impossible scenario. And on the hearts of us all this week, I know that that seemingly impossible scenario looks a lot like the election of 2016. I want to share some stats with you guys. Um, an American Psychological Association uh, survey in 2016 claimed that 52% of the general public is experiencing election stress, and it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, or Independent. And another survey by the APA released September 14th shows that about one in four American workers were reported feeling less productive and more stressed at their jobs because of their political discussions that were going on there. <laughs> and these feelings of discontent were consistent regardless of political party affiliation or ideology. If you go near a screen of any kind this week or in the months that have passed, you are most likely going to be bombarded with information you're not even sure you can trust anymore. Election stress disorder is actually a term that was coined by a therapist named Stephen Stonesy. This week, over half the country is going to be more disappointed than in any other election in history, and it's really, really easy to let this get the better of us. So what I want to do this morning is not get political in a sense of trying to change your mind or who to vote for or anything like that. What I want to do this morning, and I think what church should be doing this morning, is offering a place of peace. So we're going to do that through the story of Joseph and, and Jesus. Here's the most political thing I'll say probably in my entire uh, pastoral career. And I wanted to point to the most famous verse in all the Bible, and that's John 3.16. If you've grown up in church, you can rattle that bad boy off. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so those who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life, right? Now, what's fascinating about that verse is that in America, we assume that that world portion is just for us. For God so loved America that he gave his only begotten son. Now, the verse says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here's the peace that we can carry with us. 
God cares more about the world than he cares about America. I know that's going to be devastating to some of you. <laughs> but we've got a lot of privilege in this room. <laughs> the key political statement and the most controversial thing about the Joseph story is that God doesn't really seem to be taking sides with a nation. He's not taking sides with, with a tribe or a nation, but he sees that Egypt is in a place to provide for all of the nations around it. So he says, I'll use Joseph to infiltrate the biggest superpower that's there at the time, and when this famine hits, that biggest superpower will have enough grain saved that people can go and pay for grain. So there's an abundant amount of care through God for all the nations, not just Egypt, not just Israel. But he's providing for everyone. God cared for humanity using the systems that we made up. He cared for humanity by using the systems in an upside-down way. And not only that, but Joseph provided care and forgiveness for those who hurt him the most, which was his family. Through all this craziness, Joseph trusts God. And I think that's what it really comes down to in this election and in the next couple days where we're just going to reach fever pitch in our country. We have to trust. As we have to trust that no matter what happens on Tuesday, Wednesday is still going to be there. And we have to trust that even though there's Friday, Sunday is coming. And we have to trust that the kingdom Jesus came to proclaim is much bigger than two candidates that we're honestly not that thrilled about. Joseph was able to trust that original dream he had experienced, and he trusted that it would come true, even though the dark twists his story took him through. And for those who follow Christ, it really comes down to how much we trust God. Guys, if we really believe that a person, that a person can move the needle on, alone on what happens in the major, major decisions that shape our world and our economy and our globe, then we actually have a real faith problem on our hands. Because just like in this story of Joseph, and the story of Joseph is actually very unique. In most of the stories we've been through in Genesis, we see God literally coming into the picture and speaking to the person that's involved, to the protagonist. He's guiding them through in a really physical way. But in the story of Joseph, we don't see God's fingerprints on this thing until the end. At the end of the story, Joseph proclaims, this is all that God has sent me here so that this could be done. And I can tell you, in a matter of fact, because these stories prove it, that whenever there is oppression, hurt, or evil, God steps in, so much so that he literally stepped into human history in the man of Jesus Christ. And we have this Christian perspective of Jesus that's like 2,000 years after the fact, but I hope we can remember sort of the Jewish context and how people would have experienced Jesus in his day. You see, the Messiah, this this key figure that was supposed to liberate them was actually physically going to liberate them. So the Jewish people expected Jesus to come in and overthrow the Roman government and do that likely by force. But how boring would the story be if Jesus just came to overthrow the Roman government? The story is so much better than that. It's so much more compelling than that because the story is for all people. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for the Romans. It's for all People, it is everlasting good news. The good news, the stuff that we can lean into this morning, the stuff that can de-stress us from all this craziness going on, is that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. God so loved the world. And so if there's one thing we can be doing, besides voting, which, please do that. I'm not, if there's one thing we can be doing, it's, it's putting that 
hat on, putting that mindset, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That we're not the center of everything, and this election is going to pass. We're going to wake up Wednesday morning. But in this space, what I want to do this morning for us is create sort of just a, a, like a sense of peace. So we're going to take communion, and as we do that, I just pray that you would uh, you take this time to just sort of reflect and think about what's going on, and then just also pray for that trust. Pray for that peace as we engage the communion. Also, you guys have uh, cards on your chair. You either sat on it or it's next to you. Um, fill that out with your, your name and your prayer request. We really want to hear from you. You can engage in that at the community table here, and you can drop in also any tithes or gifts or offerings. This is our chance to be generous in this portion of the service. So let me pray for us, and then uh, we can rock and roll. God, I, I'm just so thankful that you have written this stuff down. Or that we have something that we can look to that is concrete and tangible that says when an impossible situation comes our way, there is always hope because you are always at the center of it. So I know there are other stresses besides this election that are going on that are far more devastating in our lives. And so I pray over those this morning as well. I pray that you would move in mighty ways this week. And that, Lord, we could trust in your peace. We could lean into that peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace, perfect peace. So, God, as we take communion this morning, would you just remind us of how you broke the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the wine and you said, this is my blood, the sign of a new covenant poured out for you. Do this and remember me. And so I pray that as we approach this table, we remember you. And I pray for our week. I pray for this crazy time we're about to head into as we leave these walls. But that's the important work is when we leave this space. So may you bless that and, uh, and bring us back here next week. Amen. So front row can come up and funnel through to communion. Take your time over here. This is a place of prayer as well. You